I have the great honor this morning of introducing the very Reverend Dr. Peter Seymour. We are so glad to have him here preaching at ION. He is currently the director of the Anglican Leadership Institute for the Diocese of South Carolina, but his resume is long and lengthy. But the most important part is that he's my father. <laughs> Very proud to have him here today. So he's going to open up the word for us. Thank you, Kate. And be- before we just pray, let me say it's a joy to be here. Uh, always, Sandra and I love being here and love worshiping with you at Ion. We used to live here uh, for a while when we first moved here. And, um, and so we come about every other Sunday and, and really love the opportunity to worship with you. And um, hear Sean and Kate preach. And uh, this was a bit of an unusual time because Chris Warner asked me to do this Sunday because he's away, I think on sabbatical, isn't he? So he was away and he asked me to do this Sunday. And he didn't know and I didn't know that two weeks ago I would have a brain tumor taken out of my head. Um, you know, a sudden thing that was really surprising to me, but they got a brain tumor out of this frontal lobe. And um, so we've been recovering from that for the last two weeks. Um, fortunately, it hasn't yet had a big impact on me, um, but who knows? And so I told Kate that if halfway through the sermon I suddenly do this, and, uh, you know, she's going to finish the sermon for me. So. <laughs> we've, we've got our signals straight. So let's, let's bow for a moment in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, um, and uphold me that I might uplift you, and that through these words of mine, the word of God will make, be made manifest and clearer in our minds and hearts, and will motivate our wills to submit ourselves to you, to draw upon your grace, and to live more in the light of your love day by day. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, um, or the Holy Ghost, as sometimes he was called in the Elizabethan English, um, people are sort of all over the map when it comes to any talk about the Holy Spirit. And uh, that is partly because for so long, the Holy Spirit has been what is called the forgotten member of the Trinity. There is very little teaching and thought about the Holy Spirit for many, many years, And um, despite the fact that he has been with us since Pentecost, since long before that, um, the real Trinity for many people is, leaves him out. For some Protestants, the real Trinity is the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. For some Catholics, the real Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. So in terms of real Trinity, people sometimes forget about the Holy Spirit because he hasn't been taught about very much. And um, so when people do discover the Holy Spirit, very often they try to find a box to put him in. Let me give you an example. There's first of all, what I call the emotional box. A Holy Spirit church, if you ever describe a church as one of those Holy Spirit churches, is likely to be uh, a church where there's very great emotion expressed, a kind of rock and roll, happy clappy kind of place, as people say, sometimes moaning and groaning on the floor, um, maybe even dancing in the aisles. If you've ever been to one, you know what I mean. Um, Emotionalism takes over, it seems. So there's that emotional box. 
But let's go back 500 years to the 16th century AD, the time of the Protestant Reformation, or the High Middle Ages, as it was called, the High Middle Ages. And people had forgotten about the Holy Spirit then, except when it came to the sacraments. Because the Spirit was thought to come upon the newly baptized in baptism and at confirmation. And mostly the Spirit was present when the water and wine were transformed into the body and blood of Christ on the altar during the prayer of consecration. So the Spirit was in many ways focused on the sacramental life of the church. So that was the first box is the emotional box. The second box is the sacramental box. But what if we go back, way back, and try to think of the time when the Nicene Creed, which you all have been studying, was put together. And think of what the Holy Spirit meant to people then. So you've been hearing wonderful sermons from Sean on the Nicene Creed. We've heard a few of them. And so you're familiar with many of these, isu these issues, but let's try to put ourselves back in the fourth century AD for a few moments. And what kind of box would we put the Holy Spirit in if we had to find a box for him then? And I'm gonna to suggest to you that we would put the Holy Spirit in what would be called the philosophical box, a philosophical box. But to understand that, let me give you a three minute history lesson, which will remind you of your early Roman Empire history um, that I'm sure you all have forgotten, but let me try to remind you of it. Um, you remember that the Roman Empire was divided into two sections, a western section based in Rome and an eastern section based in Constantinople. And it was all one empire, but there were very great differences between the two. If you had grown up in the western Roman Empire, you would have learned to speak and write Latin you would acknowledge the emperor as supreme, almost godlike, and Roman laws, Roman customs, Roman ways, and rules would all prevail. But if you had grown up in the Eastern Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, you would have grown up very differently. You would have learned to speak Greek, and you would find that the emperor was nowhere near as powerful in people's minds as he was in the West. And although there were many more Christians in the Eastern Roman Empire, um, the bishops in the East were not as united and um, Greek customs and philosophy would have sort of permeated society. And so take the naughty old problem of unity and diversity, unity and diversity. In the West, unity was never a problem. The military might of Rome overwhelmed everything. The emperor's word was final, thumbs up, you live, thumbs down, you die. That was all there was to it. No questions asked. So unity was assumed. But in the East, unity was always a big problem. Greek philosophers going way back before Christ to Plato and Aristotle had searched for something to unite all the diversity that we see in the world together into one unified whole. They didn't have the concept of a creator God, one creator God that the Jews did. So they tried to find something to tie it all together. Earth, air, fire, water, the four great substances. They thought, well, maybe they tie it all together. Maybe they do, but they don't completely tie it all together. And then Plato had taught the abstract ideals that are honor and, 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 and bravery and insight and harmony and so on. 
and that they were more real than any expression of them. So he, he taught this idea of the ideals. And it even went to things as simple as furniture. You know, for example, there might be two chairs there, one brown and one yellow chair. And um, you and I would say there are two chairs, brown and a yellow chair. But to Plato and his successors, there was one thing there, chairness, chairness. The colors and the shapes were accidental. Uh, the chairness is what mattered. And that demoted all objective things, including the human body, so that Plato said it wasn't the body that was important, it's the soul that's important. The body can waste away or it can rot with sensuality, but no mind, it is the soul that is eternal, taught Plato. So let's imagine you grew up in a Greek-speaking home in the eastern part of the empire, and you had learned to speak Greek and learned Greek philosophy and so on. And then along come this group of Christians saying there is not only one God, but that this God had a son, Jesus, and he had come in the flesh in a body and lived and died to take away our sins. To you, this would have sounded not like one God, but like two, because you were trained to think of diversity. You thought of two-ness before you ever thought of oneness. So the Father and the Son, they cannot be the same. So to correct that, there, and also, by the way, there was a very influential teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, that Sean taught about, Arius, who said the Son and the Father cannot possibly be the same or eternal or, or glorious as one another. No, the Son had to be slightly less than fully God than the Father. And this heresy, Arianism, spread like wildfire, particularly in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And so to sort of counter this, the church called together this big council in Nicaea in 325 AD. And it was to settle the difference, and it did. And the son was now co-equal with the father, and the council settled on the formula, which has lasted for 2,000 years, that God is one substance in three persons. So that was done. But then there was still the issue of the Holy Spirit. These Christian teachers were also saying that the Holy Spirit was another person in the Trinity, equal to God, the Father, and the Son, but somehow different. So now we have another problem, but only a problem because these Greek-speaking people were so taken up with diversity, threeness rather than oneness. So the council met again in 381 AD, and there was further arguing and further tension, and they, they didn't want to say there were three gods, of course not, but the Greek philosophy kept coming in. So in the council, they decided to fix this once and for all with the formula that we now know and say in the creed Sunday by Sunday. So what specifically did the Nicene Creed say about the Holy Spirit? And what did it mean to them then and what does it mean to us now? Well, there are many passages, of course, about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, but Let's see what these 4th century Christians decided they wanted to stress. Here they are. The Creed says seven things about the Holy Spirit. First, that he is the Lord and giver of life. Second, that he proceeds from the Father and with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Third, that he spoke by the prophets. Fourth, that he constitutes the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
Fifth, that baptism into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a once-for-all event that signifies the forgiveness of sins. Sixth, that he guarantees the resurrection of the dead. And seventh, that he points to the life of the world to come. Those are all mentioned in the Nicene Creed. So to recapitulate, we have looked at the modern age, churches that emphasize the Holy Spirit. We might put them in the emotional box, or some people would. We've looked 500 years ago to the high Middle Ages when the church so linked the spirit with the sacraments that he was more or less institutionalized in those sacraments. We call that the sacramental box. But if we go back 1,600 years to the time of the Roman Empire, we might say there's another box, a philosophical box. Let me tell you a personal story. Years ago, when I was rector of a church in Toronto, Canada, um, a parishioner called me and asked me if I would go to the hospital and visit a dying man that she knew. And I said, sure. So the man's family were Roman Catholics, and, and despite my black shirt and my clerical collar, I think they wondered if I was one of those Anglicans who may say the creed in the liturgy in the church, but who whittle away at the edges of the faith and no longer really hold to it dogmatically. So after the usual pleasantries, we were standing and we all sort of gathered around the bed of the dying man. And before I could pray, one of the man's relatives, and I assume he was Roman Catholic, but I don't know because the relatives, other Roman Catholics were, he looked me in the eye and he blurted out these words. He said, Jesus Christ, true son of God, true son of man. Exactly those words. So I looked him just as earnestly in the eye and I replied, absolutely. Well, it was as if he'd asked me the $64,000 question. You know, do you really believe what is in the creed, or are you one of those woolly Anglicans who kind of make up your own faith? And I thought it was a very good question, and right on. And he wanted to know about my Christology, my doctrine of Christ. Was it what Christians have confessed through the centuries, or was it a hodgepodge of thoughts that swim around in my own head but do not conform to what the Bible says or what the worldwide church has said for 2,000 years. And once we established that I was a true believer, um, the, the man seemed okay with my leading in prayer. And uh, so we all prayed and shook hands as friends and brothers, and, and that was that. Now, he could have said, do you believe in the Nicene Creed? Or do you cross your fingers behind you when you say it? And his way of asking was different, but it was more or less the same thing. You see, in the West, we take unity for granted. So God is the creator of everything. Everything goes back to him. The unity ties all diversity together. He is God, the creator, the sustainer, the Lord of all creation. So the diversity that we see takes us back to him, and he is the unifying factor in all. But let's imagine, try to imagine you knew nothing of the God of Israel, nothing of the creator God. And you've been brought up with tutors, maybe sent to some academy somewhere as a teenager, and you were very confused about this troublesome question of unity and diversity. I'll give you an illustra another illustration. These Christians in the Eastern Roman Empire lived with the tension between the one and the many. But they tended to think always of the many rather than the one. Hence, the creed emphasizes the unity of the Father with the Son, and the Father and the Son with the Spirit. Those, those Christians may have been very confused. Remember, the Greek idea of God stressed the many gods. On Mount Olympus, there were at least 12 gods. 
Zeus, the god of the sky, lightning and thunder, Hera, the queen of the gods, goddess of marriage, women and childbirth, Poseidon, the god of the seas, water, storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, and horses, Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, fertility, nature, and the seasons, Athens, the goddess of wisdom, handicraft, and warfare, Apollo, the god of light and prophecy, and the sun. There were 12 of them, and a few more hangers-on as well, beside those 12. And what a pantheon to try to get your mind around. Um, diversity to boggle the mind. The only thing they had to unite the whole universe was their godness, according to Greek philosophy. So in that world, diversity swallowed up unity, and there was almost no way to recover that unity. And that's why the Christian message was so refreshing and healing for the confused Greek mind. It was. And the story of Pentecost is worth thinking about from that point of view. We, we heard the story read to us from Acts, but let's go back into the dim, dark recesses of prehistory for just a moment, and let me read you a few verses from Genesis 11. You know this story. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they said, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this, this they begin to do and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. <clears throat> I say you know that story, but compare it with what we heard from Acts. The day of Pentecost was come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Do you see what's happening here? In the story of the Tower of Babel, diversity takes over. People can no longer communicate with each other. Confusion reigns. Human community is dissolved into myriads of tiny little groups that are incapable of communicating with one another. But into this world comes a new message, one of freedom from isolation, freedom from bondage to our little cultures, freedom from confusion and non-communication. And through the Holy Spirit, people once again are able to communicate with each other, to understand each other. What a breakthrough, huge breakthrough. A new humanity is born. Paul says this is the great mystery that has been hidden for all ages, but has finally been made manifest in Jesus, that there is now a new community, one family, one people in Christ Jesus. Neither Jew and Gentile, neither slave and free, neither Greek and barbarian, but one people in Christ Jesus. And this is why the creed moves from the Holy Spirit immediately to the body of Christ. 
I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. Because the Holy Spirit not only touches us individually, but he brings us together into a new community that loves one another and that witnesses by word and deed um, in a way that the world has never seen before. So let me bring this to a conclusion. Um, do you ever wonder why the Christian church has not died out? And think of it. First, there were the persecutions under the Roman emperors. Then there were the massacres by the barbarian hordes from the north. Then there were the invasions and massacres by the new religion of Islam. Then there were the corruptions of the medieval popes. Then there were superstitions of the Middle Ages. It is said that there are enough pieces of the true cross of Christ in churches of Europe to fill a forest of trees. Then there were the tumults of the Reformation, followed by the wars of religion. Then there were the assaults of the Enlightenment and the Age of Skepticism. Then there was the proliferation of cults. Then there was the rise of anti-Christian movements, Nazism, Communism, Nationalism, and on it goes. And yet, yet, the Church of Jesus Christ marches on. Take just our denomination, Anglicanism. There are more Anglican Christians worshiping in Nigeria today than in all of Europe, including England, all of North and South America, all of it combined. There are more Nigerian Anglican Christians worshiping today there than in all these other countries combined. Christianity has been the most persecuted religion in the world, and yet it is the fastest growing religion in the world. And to what do you attribute that? Um, colonialism? Nationalism? You know, no, I attribute it to the Holy Spirit. Not, no one can say that Jesus is Lord, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, except by the Holy Spirit. Now think of that. Of course you can say it. Anyone can say it, not mean it. But what Paul is saying is, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, the kurios, the dominos, uh, then if you confess that, then it's not because you've been forced to, or because it's social convention, or because you were brought up to say it. It's because the Holy Spirit has acted in your life to help you see the truth that is in Jesus and to confess that honestly and sincerely. On April 20th, 1999, a little over 20 years ago, Cassie Bernal was in her class at Columbine High School in Colorado. She had been to a church retreat that weekend and recommitted her life to Christ. And she was hiding under a desk in her classroom when the shootings began. Craig Scott, another classmate, heard one of the shooters ask a student whether she believed in God and distinctly heard the reply, yes, I do. Cassie was summarily shot and died. And this isn't just a story. This is a testimony to the tenacity of faith. The Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and makes them real and enables believers to endure all kinds of hardship and opposition, even martyrdom. Remember, the very first thing we say about the Holy Spirit in the Creed, He is the Lord and giver of life. And that's true, of course, in an ultimate sense. He was there at creation. The Father used the Spirit to create the world and the universe. But it's also true in a spiritual sense. The religion of Christianity, to many people, is still just doctrines and rules and prayers and customs and celebrations until the Holy Spirit touches each of us and we think differently. 
So I grew up, in my closing comment, I grew up in a church-going home, um, but much of it was custom and even a joke to me until I was away at boarding school, and at the age of 16, I began to ask questions. Um, was it really true? Did it really happen? Who really was Jesus? And in my questions that year, 1953, um, I remember slipping out of my dormitory after lights were out and going down the dark stairway to a corridor that opened up into the school's chapel. And I remember sitting in the headmaster's chair that night, and I was all alone. The only light in the entire chapel was the solitary candle over the altar that was lit all the time. And it was very close to Easter. And I began to ask myself whether Jesus had actually risen from the dead, or was it just a nice story? And I assumed that he did, but then he must have wandered off and died somewhere a little later in the deserts of Judea. It didn't occur to me until that night when I was sitting there um, <clears throat> that the answer was something different. And I sat there all alone, but I felt that I was not alone. Another presence was with me, and I began to realize that if Jesus had risen 2,000 years ago, it must mean that in some sense he was still alive now. I remember very distinctly thinking that. And I began to talk to him, quietly, not out loud. And as I began to, I felt his presence right there. Um, and I found myself believing in him in a totally new way. I had been baptized, I had been confirmed, I had taken Holy Communion, but I had never felt that way. But now I did. Jesus was alive, he was Lord. I didn't know much about the faith. Um, I couldn't have recited the Nicene Creed if you'd asked me. And I didn't receive any new information that, at that moment, and I, but, but I, I knew that Jesus was real and I never looked back. It was an awakening to old information that I now saw in a totally new way. So let me close with a quote that you may have heard before by T.S. Eliot in one of his poems in The Four Quartets. And T.S. Eliot wrote, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. You've heard that quote, perhaps. So I didn't learn anything new that night at exploration in the chapel. I knew it already. I did not discover a new truth about the faith. I had passed my catechism. I had gotten confirmed. But what I did was return to the very place where I had started, and I now knew it for the first time. So that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives life to the dry bones of the faith and makes a long-dead Messiah come alive to a searching teenage boy, and it has made all the difference. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit to awaken our eyes to what is invisible, to open our hearts to your love, to convince our minds of the truth of your word, to enable us to walk in your grace um, day by day and know that you are with us wherever we are. So Holy Spirit, be the comforter to each person in this room that you have promised to be, and may we all walk in the light of your truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.